invite you all to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 16 today. Ephesians chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 16. And actually, the song we just heard is an excellent uh, testimony to what's going on for us right now as we work through the book of Ephesians. We have looked at the first part of this book, chapters 1 through 3, which have dealt with us and shared with us the glories of God's grace and the riches of His mercy to us, as uh, these folks up front just sung, the mercies of the Lord are bracing, ever bridging, never breaking, leading to a kingdom glorious of power and light. And then we're also reminded in those first three chapters that the Lord has done this work and stepped into our lives to rescue us out of deadness. The song just sung says this, finds me in the forest tangled and lost, hidden and lost. The mercies of the Lord are brilliant burning lights that soothe and scald at once. We've seen this in these first chapters of Ephesians, and now we make a a transition today, a a, a pivoting from those first few chapters, which talked a lot about the principles of God's salvation. Now we move into the second three chapters, the second half, the three chapters at the end of Ephesians that talk about the practices of salvation, how we live this salvation out in our lives. Those two things are not totally uh, mutually exclusive, but that's the pathway that Paul is laying out before us in this book. So as we turn here, we'll see that, and, and we'll also see some other things as well. In these chapters 4 through 6, some themes are going to start to come to light for us. This issue of unity in diversity that we've really already seen some in Ephesians, you'll see this morning laid out before us. Then in coming weeks, we'll see this theme of purity and love in Christ. Then of such practical things as how to live a graciously ordered home in Christ. How we're supposed to relate to one another. Husband to wife, children to parents, parents to children. Even in our workplace to those who are above us and for those who are above others to those below us. And then lastly, we'll see what Ephesians has to say in chapter 6 about strength that God gives us for the spiritual battle that's before us. That's where we're headed in Ephesians I invite you now to stand with me in recognition and honor of God's holy word and seeking for it to work in our lives as we read together. Well, I'll read for you and you read along with me. I'll read aloud verses 1 through 16 of Ephesians 4. Paul says, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body in Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is properly is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May be seated, and as you do, let me pray for our time. Now, Father, we do ask that you would come and move. We need you to open our eyes to see things in your word and to apply them in our lives and to walk differently because of them. Uh, Father, we pray that you would do that. We do pause now to, uh, to pray tonight that you would give us uh, good weather for this concert, that it would be a time used to reach uh, people in the community for a connecting point for them with us and with our church, that you might do a work through that. Father, we pray for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the movie Saving Private Ryan tells the story about living a life worthy of the sacrifice that's been made for us. Certainly uh, well-deserving of its R rating. It's not one for the kiddos. But as the story goes, shortly after the D-Day invasion, the U.S. War Department realizes that a certain Sean Ryan remains alive, having dropped in with thousands of troops and scattered all over France. He remains alive despite the fact that his mother has lost the three brothers of this Sean Ryan. The War Department decides that something needs to be done about this to rescue this one brother so that this mother would not lose all of her sons. And so they send out a special small group led by Captain Miller. This group is not real excited about their task, but they go forth and, in fact, several of them give their lives even before they arrive to Ryan's location. When they get to that location, they realize that, in fact, they are now needed to help defend this important strategic bridge against the coming German attack. Soon the rest of the team, except for Captain Miller, have also given their lives. And Captain Miller has told Ryan that he wants him to stay behind him, that he might protect him to the last. The German attack comes, and finally Miller is the last man standing between them and Ryan. He suffers mortal wounds, and even as the Allied troops arrive suddenly to save Ryan, Miller utters these dying words to Ryan. Earn this. Earn this. 
on the surface, these words fly, and in one sense, fly in the face of the biblical message about God's grace and His free mercy to us, because we can never earn that. We can never secure that by our own working. It's only Christ's gift to us. Well, of course, what Miller was really trying to convey is very much in line with what these verses call us to today, that Ryan would live a life recognizing these who had come to purchase his life and to keep him alive and to give him life. And so, too, in these verses, we see that Paul is calling us to respond to the life that Christ has given for us, to live a life that's worthy of that, that reflects the glory of that sacrifice made. Well, how do we do that? That's what these verses are going to begin to tell us about. How do, how do we make that happen? Well, it's in a couple of ways. One is we recognize here that certain gifts are given to the church so that the church might hear and know God's Word. And that in knowing God's Word, all of us might be equipped to walk in a life that is worthy of the Lord and worthy of what He has done for us. If you turn on the back of your bulletin, if you want to follow along with some notes, you can. I did not put down there a main idea this week, but if you want a main idea, because I usually put one and you become a bit obsessive about having to have a main idea, that's fine. Here's the main idea. Since God gifts the church with His Word, since God gifts the church with His Word, we should equip ourselves by it to walk in spiritual maturity. We should equip ourselves by it to walk in spiritual maturity. So we look at these verses, there's a number of reasons that we don't do this, that we struggle to grow in fully being equipped as mature believers, that we struggle maybe even to begin to walk in a manner worthy of. Of Christ. One is just our ongoing sin. So the first thing that should be said is Paul's calling us to an ideal and he wants us to pursue it, but we also need to recognize we'll never live up to it fully. That's why we need God's ongoing grace. Um, another struggle we might have besides just our ongoing uh, sin is that we, we maybe don't really, all of us are, are always in process of realizing the very things that we've talked about this fall in Ephesians 1 through 6, the glories and riches, the the worth of Christ, that we struggle to live a life worthy of Christ because we don't recognize the worth of what He has done for us. So we need to meditate on those things and contemplate those things. So that's part of our struggle. We also might have, we might be in a place where we have almost complete ignorance as to what it would actually look like to walk in a life worthy of Christ. We hear those words and you say, okay, but no brass tacks, no way to put it into practice. It's hard to, hard to get it worked down. Others of us may have begun to walk in that, to seek that kind of maturity spiritually, but we find that at all points we have much room to grow, don't we? We have much room to grow in walking with the Lord. So we need to hear what these verses have to say to us today. And I've broken it down uh, as I think the verses break it down. One, there's a beginning point for us. Two, we'll look at the means 
to an end. I'll tell you right away, the end is to walk in faith, to grow in maturity, spiritual maturity with the Lord. So we're going to talk about where do we begin, how do, and then how do we get from that beginning to that end of trying to walk in maturity with the Lord. Okay, so the first thing is the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 4 tells us that. It tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. This brings to my mind uh, verses like Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Here in, in Ephesians, we've got a transition point going from what Christ has done for us, if you will, to how we respond. So too in Romans. In Romans, Paul goes on for 11 chapters before he transitions to how we're to respond. But it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that in view of God's mercy, we should offer our lives as living sacrifices, that we shouldn't be conformed anymore to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by God's working. So Paul's urging us to this same kind of transformation. And another passage, I think, from Romans is helpful for us here as well, because when you hear about all God's grace and hear about the mercies that he's given to us and know that it's a free gift, you might ask, well, why do I need to even change the way I live? If God's glorified in showing mercy in my sin, maybe it's fine for me to just stay there. And even some who were interacting with Paul would go as far as to say, maybe I should sin more. Then that'll be more grace will come into the world. Won't that be a good thing? Well, Paul talks about that in Romans 6, and he puts it down uh, very clearly when he says, uh, says this, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And his answer to that is, by no means. <laughs> no way should that be our understanding of grace. And so here we have the same idea. The, the reformer Luther put it this way. He said, faith alone justifies. Faith alone allows us to be declared righteous before the living God, before the holy God. Faith alone justifies but faith that justifies is never alone. What he's saying is if we really understand the gospel, it's going to compel us, propel us to live in a transformed way, to live in a changed way. That's what Paul is talking about here as well. So the first question for us as we go through these verses is, what is, our, what is the nature of our faith? It does, do we have that concept in our faith that it's certain things that we believe and receive from Christ and also that those certain things compel us, propel us to transformation, to living as a disciple, to walking in a manner worthy of Christ? Are we living in light of free grace would be a way to put it. Are we living in light of free grace or are we cheapening grace by how we view the worth of Christ? We think about that, Paul gives us an initial application for all of this. We're about to look again at three chapters over the next weeks of application of this. But he talks to us in verse 2 through 6, if you look there in your Bible with me, about one initial starting point for this idea of walking in a manner worthy. He says this, that we're to walk in humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, that there's... A unity of the Spirit, there should be one body and one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Speaking here, this idea that we should walk together in unity with one another. And it's hard. Any one of these things is really difficult. It's hard to even begin. A call to humility, 
That's a challenging one. We're far more prone to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to rather than to think of others more highly than ourselves. I love the story of the pastor who came upon a group of boys and they were gathered around a, a dead dog that was lying on the ground. And the pastor came up to see what was going on and the boys said, well, we're having a contest to see who can tell the biggest lie and whoever tells the biggest lie gets to keep the dead dog. The pastor just uh, acts appalled at this. He says, boys, this is horrible. This is a horrible game. In my day, I never played these kind of games. Uh, one by one, the boys kind of wandered off from the dog, and the pastor grabbed the last one as he was walking away and said, son, where are you going? The boy said, pastor, you can have the dog. You won. It's easy to think more highly of ourselves than we should than to have this humble posture that the gospel gives us when we realize we're dead in our trespasses and yet Christ has recognized us and then we approach one another with humility. It goes on to tell us we're supposed to approach each other with gentleness. God is concerned that we treat each other kindly, patience, being patient, enduring with one another. And then it describes all of this unity that we have, one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. What this is telling us is that, you know, we can be involved in the church. We can come regularly. We can serve. We can give. We can pray for the church. But Paul is saying if we are not as a very first step to living out the life of Christ, figuring out how to love one another, how to look past others' weaknesses and foibles, how to be patient with each other, how to be humble with each other, then we've totally missed the boat. 1 Corinthians 13 is a great passage to read at weddings and so forth. It's probably where we hear it most often. But it's about the church. It tells us there that if we, we do all these wonderful things for the Lord but don't have love, then we're just a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal, just something making annoying noise. So the Lord is greatly concerned that we walk in this posture of unity. And in Christ... We're given a reason to be united, regardless of our background. The world talks a lot about diversity. We talked about this in past weeks and about tolerating one another in our different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds and racial backgrounds and family situations. But only Christ gives us the ability to actually connect there. Saw the Pepsi commercial yesterday while watching many of the good football games that were on, and it was singing some song about one tribe. And that, that's great. The Lord is going to bring together all tribes and nations, but we're really not one tribe. We're at odds with each other. And I don't think a carbonated beverage is going to bring us together. Christ has got to do that work. Christ has got to do that work. Second thing we see in these verses is the, the means. Okay, so you've seen the beginning is that we're called to walk in this manner worthy. And Paul talks about unity a bit and the importance of that. Then how do we get from one point to the end, which is growing in spiritual maturity. Well, look with me at verse 7. It says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So it tells us that gifts are given to all of us. If you flip over, well, flip over in mind, anyway, to uh, 16, verse 16, it tells us that each part is working properly. The body grows and builds itself up. So all of us are supposed to be recognizing God's working in us, that he's given us gifts for the building up of the body. But then it goes into this really interesting little description, which if you haven't read these verses ever before, or it's been a long time, 
who probably got rather confused about the descending and ascending and all of this stuff. So read, read this with me again because it's not just mumbo-jumbo. It's got a lot of meat for us. Therefore, it says in verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led host a, a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens. Hey, what in the world is that talking about? Well, first of all, it's giving us this, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating picture of an Old Testament king warrior. An Old Testament king warrior. And it's talking about him going uh, up. Uh, if you turn with me to Psalm 68, real quickly, Psalm 68, flip over there if you can, because this is one, it's just one verse, but it'll help you if you actually turn there with me. Psalm 68, Psalms is kind of right in the middle of your Bible. Uh, Psalm 68, verse 18. Okay, so you just heard the verse from Ephesians. Now I want, they're going to read, read along with me, verse 18 from 68, uh, and tell me, tell me what's different. It says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. Paul have some kind of typo here, some kind of mix-up when he refers to this verse in Ephesians 4, 8. You'll notice the differences. In the Psalms, it says that he received gifts. In Ephesians, it says that he gives gifts. What is Paul saying here? Did he just some little typo, little mix-up? No. Paul is trying to tell us something amazing. And that is that the Old Testament king who would uh, descend out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a hill, so that's what it's talking about with descending. He would descend out of Jerusalem. He would go claim a victory for God's people. And then in order to come back into the city, he would ascend back into the city. And if he was victorious, he'd probably have some captives with us. And most rulers in the ancient world, they've won this great victory for their people. They've done all this incredible thing for them. What are the people going to want to do? Respond. Give them gifts. Give them things. And so he would receive gifts. What does Paul say? What does he want to convey to us about Jesus? He said Jesus is, uh, is the epitome, the fulfillment of this warrior king. But he's so gracious that he's not interested in receiving gifts. He wants to keep giving gifts, keep pouring things out to his people. That's the kind of king that he is. And just as the Old Testament king descended and ascended, Jesus has come into this world. He was sitting at the right hand of the Father, and now he has ascended, showing his victory, showing what he has done. That's the picture that Paul has here. Now, here's the interesting thing. What are... The gifts. We can think of a lot of things that God gifts us with, but what is Paul's talking specifically about here? What are the gifts that he gives? Well, he says in general, it's these spiritual gifts, the fact that each of us have some contribution we can make to each other. But in particular, he says the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. You say, well, fantastic. Pastor Peters has already got a big head, and now this thing is telling him that he's God's gift to the church. That's actually exactly what Paul is saying in one breath with telling all of us that we are all God's gift to each other. Specifically, what he's focusing, wants to focus us in on is what, what's the commonality between all these people, the apostles and prophets and so forth that we don't really you know, have in our church life today, but pastors and teachers and evangelists, what's the common link? What do all of them do? 
do what I'm doing right now. They take God's word and seek to serve it up to us, to give it to us. So they're delivering God's word. And so Paul is saying that as we receive God's word, that's how we move to and grow and be equipped into spiritual maturity. That's the means. That's the connecting point for us. Uh, One of the catechism questions that I love and I would love if all of us embraced, even if we didn't memorize it, and I don't sit up here each Sunday and talk about catechism things, as, as you all know, but one of them is question 90 from the shorter catechism, and it's always been really helpful for me, not just in hearing preaching or Sunday school teaching, but just in opening the Bible yourself or hearing a friend share God's word. It says this in question 90. It says, how should the word be read and be heard so that it would be effective for our salvation? How should the word be read and heard so that it would be effective to salvation? It's saying there's an onus on all of us in whatever setting we're receiving the word to posture ourselves some way so that it would be effective, not just for coming to salvation, but for growing in salvation. What's the answer to that question in the catechism. It says, in order for this to happen, we should attend to God's word, it says, with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Well, does that mean? Well, one thing, uh, moms and dads, how about Saturday night? We're sitting around the dinner table. Let's pray, or as we're putting the kids to bed, let's pray that tomorrow morning when we go to church and we hear God's word, let us be open to us. Open to it. So we should attend to it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. And then three things, three pictures I love. Receive it with faith. So that's something we have to decide to do each week that we come here. Or if you're in your own Bible reading by yourself, you have to decide, am I going to receive what the Word has to say? Receive it with faith. Lay it up in our hearts. I always love that picture because I just picture kind of a shelf in my heart that, you know, I've got to put it somewhere. And just grab it, but I gotta stick it somewhere so it'll be there, won't get lost. And then the last part, practice it in our lives. That's how we are bringing the word into our lives. So, how should the word be read and heard? We should attend to it with diligence, preparation, and prayer, receive it with faith, uh, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. So, a question for us today is are we doing that? Seeing that Jesus has ascended and done all this work and gives us the gift of his word through people to proclaim it or through us being just able to pick it up. We have a posture of readiness to receive it and be taught by it. And the last thing we see in these verses, my third point, is uh, this question of growing in spiritual maturity. Growing in spiritual maturity. Uh, Look with me at verse 12 here in these verses and Paul goes in one very long sentence here in case you didn't notice as I was trying to read it verse 12 he says that this word as it comes in will be used to equip the saints that's all of us not some special group of people but in the Bible the saints are every person who genuinely believes in Christ to equip the saints for the work of ministry very interesting Very interesting. I don't know what kind of model we all grew up with in a church setting. Some of us grew up and we kind of, the pastor, he just kind of does the ministry things. And we come attend and kind of support that a bit. 
The biblical model is radically different from that. The biblical model says that my job, Reverend Wood's job, is to help equip all of us to do the work of ministry. You've heard the term, every member minister. I mean, that's true. It's from the scriptures. We're all called to use our gifts. We're all called to be shepherding each other, leading each other, reaching out to each other, encouraging one another. That's something for all of us to do. These verses remind us of that. And then look with me a little bit further in verse 12. It says that this is for the building up of the body of Christ. So it's something that's, that's growing, that's developing. Um, you know, we've got our little logo for our Cross Creek Church, if you will. And somebody asked me at our recent membership class, they asked me, well, what's the deal with that? Which is funny because sometimes people never ask you about that stuff, and we actually put some thought into it. We've got this little cross at the beginning of it. If you've ever noticed, the, the cross up and down portion is just a static you know, cross representing the truth and the solidness of what Christ has done and our belief. And, and yet there's also this sort of flowing look of a river or whatever going through that cross. Well, what's the... What are we trying to convey there to us? Well, we're moving along someplace. We're not static. We're being built up. That's what Paul talks about here. Verse 13, he says that we'd be, we'd, we would be built up in such a way that we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood. We're to be growing in some sense in this mature manhood. And then verse 14 says this, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. What he's saying there is that when we're rooted in this way, when we're growing in this way, we won't waffle back and forth. You know, the Peters family have these uh, four boys of ours, and uh, one is seven, and we've got twins that are five, and then there's a little bit of a gap between the youngest one, who's about two. And uh, he could walk and so forth now, but whenever people are playing around with us the first time, usually the the one thing that they all say is they look at our youngest one, they say, he's going to be a durable little guy. He's going to be a durable, because he's getting knocked around. He gets bumped around by his brothers. He's just a little toddler, and we see little kids just beginning to walk. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, if we do not pursue this kind of equipping in God's truth, if we're not serious about it, we're going to be destined in our spiritual life just to be blown back and forth. Blown back by the waves. What are some of the waves in our time? Uh, the prosperity gospel is a huge one that's in the church. Talked about it here before. This message that, uh, you know, Christianity is going to make us all perfectly healthy and perfectly wealthy. And there's no uh, suffering or place for suffering in the Christian life. It's a message that's being embraced by the church across the board, but could not be more antithetical to what Christ has done. We will enjoy bliss and restoration in eternity. It's not going to happen in its fullness in this life. And to chase after that and move towards that instead of to Christ is just going to lead us astray. That's one thing. Uh, the culture at large is wrestling through this issue we call relativism. It says there is no truth. You notice here in these verses, look with me at one more verse, and then we'll conclude here. We'll bring this airplane down. Um, it says, verse 13, that we're supposed to have unity. Well, that's, that's nice. It's a nice idea. We like unity. But what is it? What, what's it going to be that holds it together? What's the glue? It says unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. There is a content 
to what we believe. That's why we sometimes affirm the Apostles' Creed here as we're gathering for worship. There's something that unites us, a belief that knits us together, and that's what keeps us from wavering. And so this message that our culture is sending, that there's no truth or that all truths are equally valid, is, is antithetical. It's not even going to bring about the unity that people want. And it also goes against the reality of what Christ has done. It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's a wonderful invitation. There's riches and glories that Christ has, but we need to come to him and ready to receive him and his truth. That's the steadfast bedrock that will help us mature in the Lord. Last thing we see in those verses, verse 15, it tells us that as we begin to embrace that, we'll actually be able to speak truth in love to those around us. We'll, be at, we'll, we'll have that truth in us so that we can be used in the lives of those around us to help lead them to a greater knowledge of truth. So we've seen that God is calling us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been called. We've seen that His goal is for us to be maturing spirits and not staying static where we are. And then we've seen that He's brought about the means for it, that He gives His giftings to the church and And the particular form he talks about here is God's Word, that God's Word comes and helps to give us that maturity. Let us grow in that. Let us pursue that. Let's pray together. Father, we do gladly come and give you praise and thanks today. We rejoice that you have come. We thank you once again for uh, pictures that we can put in our mind this picture of Jesus, ascendant king, having gone down and won the victory, having fought in the trenches of the battle, and then he doesn't even let us give him gifts as if he needs anything. He's still going to keep giving to us, and we thank you, Lord, for your word. I do pray for all of us, Lord, that it would have a transforming effect on us, that we would grow up in maturity in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.